Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, day 145 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borsell Dan here with our Arab Affairs reporter Luca Pacchiani and reporter Kanan Lidor. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Hi. Yesterday, much of the country voted in municipal elections. Kanan was in Tiberias, whose race was a real microcosm of Israeli politics. Luca is here to report on the resignation of the Palestinian Authority's government and explain why maybe it's not such a big deal. And we'll also hear about how Israel is no longer wary of striking the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria. All this and much, much more when we're back. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. First, some headlines. The families of hostages held by terrorists in Gaza are starting a march from the border community Kibbutz Re'im to Jerusalem under the banner of Uniting to Free the Hostages. The march is set to arrive in the capital on Saturday. Around 10 rockets have been fired from southern Lebanon towards the Israeli town so far this morning. One rocket hit Kiryat Shmona, causing damage to a building, but no injuries were reported. Jerusalem mayoral incumbent Moshe Leon appears to have cruised to victory with 99.4% of ballots counted. Leon wins 81.4% of the votes. In Tel Aviv, Orna Barbivai has conceded the Tel Aviv mayoral race, congratulating incumbent Ron Khuldai on his victory. But let's focus on Tiberias, where a secular former communications executive, Yossi Naba'a, has won the race with religious backing. So tell us about this race and, first of all, why Tiberias is such a unique case in a way. Right. So before we get to the solution to Tiberius's problems and as far as a mayor can serve as a solution, let's let's talk about the, the, the challenges that, that are facing this ancient city, lakeside city um, near Lake Kineret. Um, basically, it used to be a magnet for tourism and from for internal tourism and from, from uh, abroad. Uh, and it, it, ha- it had this zesty, vibrant nightlife and hotels, all the main chains are there. It used to be the place to be for your summer vacation in the 1980s, 70s, even up to the 90s. Uh, and then gradually 
it declined. Um, now the famous promenade, the, the, the boardwalk is pretty deserted. Uh, the, the city is run down. Uh, and in parallel to this uh, situation, hotels are in uh, partial capacity even even during the high season. So uh, in parallel, thousands of Haredi families have moved into Tveria, into Tiberias, uh, from, mostly from the center, because even places like Rishon Lezion, a suburb of Tel Aviv and Beit Shemesh, have become unaffordable to many Haredi families. And Tiberias has these new neighborhoods, new apartment buildings, which are the Israeli ideal for uh, accommodations uh, that are overlooking, uh, they're on top of the on top of the mountains, overlooking the lake. And downtown Tveria is is further is really borders on the on the lake itself as a lakefront city. So all these uh, construction projects have attracted new residents. In parallel, we have this financial decline, uh, and um, this correlation has made a lot of people. Um, see a, a causation. Uh, the, the, they connect the arrival of Haredim to the financial decline. Others are not so sure. Anyway, that's the underlying controversy that is dividing uh, Tiberius. We have two, we had two leading candidates. One is Ron Kobi, a strident anti-Haredi activist um, vowing to shut down those construction projects and, and basically make life difficult and miserable for the Haredi who are already there by rerouting public transportation, by rerouting bus routes through their neighborhoods and other forms of other hints to get out of town. And we have another candidate. Uh, Ron Kobi was already elected in 2018, but because of this strident agenda, he couldn't um, pass a budget. He couldn't work with other parties. And therefore, he, he was uh, removed from, from office and uh, the interior ministry put up a caretaker mayor in his stead. Now he's he tried to uh, get reelected. Uh, against him was um, Yossi Naba, a, um, a former Bezik executive and a caretaker of the uh, holy grave sites around Tiberias. That's always also one of his one of his positions. So he has this affinity with the Haredi community. He himself is a secular with Likud inclinations with some Likud background, but is not representing Likud in the elections. He appears to have won outright in the first round. The votes haven't all been counted yet, but it appears that this candidate, backed by the Haredim, who constitute about 20% right now of Tiberius's 51,000 uh, strong population, he appears to have won, and this anti-Haredi agenda has made way to something more um, inclined to make compromises. Uh, how well this will work out, only time will tell for the hotel sector and for the budding uh, high-tech sector in Tiberias. I caught him on the radio this morning, and what I thought was very interesting is that he is proposing to start a company to run the tourism sector, which would be a joint governmental and private company. And so basically he wants to break that off of his plate in a way and then concentrate on what is needed for the municipality, for the city itself to succeed. I thought that was really smart in a way. Which is a lesson he took from Bezik, right? That's exactly what happened to Bezik, a former government company that was partially privatized and then fully privatized and is now um, a, a big competitor in the telecom uh, sector. 
All right, Luca, let's turn to you and some more uh, reshuffling of government. And on Monday, the Palestinian Authority's government formally resigned in what is meant to mark a major step towards the revitalization of the administrative body. This is, of course, a move that was demanded by the United States and the international community if the PA is indeed to have a role ruling post-war Gaza. But it seems from what you've been writing, Luca, that the resignation maybe isn't such a major step at all. So yeah, you're right that the US has been demanding some sort of radical reform at the top of the Palestinian authorities since they started uh, uh, talking about the PA taking over Gaza after the war. They didn't request specifically the resignation of the cabinet. Uh, What they really want is for um, 88-year-old President Mahmoud Abbas to basically step down. He's not going to because he's been in power for 20 years now, but they want him to take a more uh, ceremonial role and to uh, pass a lot of his powers to the prime minister. Now, uh, Mahmoud Abbas has turned deaf ear to this request. He has been doing all sorts of cosmetic changes. Last month, he approved a package of reforms. Uh, Now, he demanded of his um, cabinet to resign. And commentators think that uh, he is going to appoint another uh, loyalist at uh, the head of the government, the head of the Palestinian Investment Fund, uh, Mohammed Mustafa, but is not stepping down and is not implementing those kind of structural changes at the top that the US and his Arab partners have been demanding. So I've spoken with um, two Palestinians, a journalist and an activist. They were both very disappointed and they both say this is just another cosmetic change, a superficial one, uh, which falls short of meeting the demands of the US and the Palestinian people because they also want him gone. He is supported by a very tiny fraction of even of his own party, of Fatah. He has a lot of opposition inside Fatah and has a lot of opposition on the street. Uh, obviously, we know that there's a lot of Hamas supporters in the West Bank as well, and they also want him uh, gone. There's meant to be a summit in Moscow potentially tomorrow. It was, I think, originally scheduled for earlier in the week, but it's been moved for later in the week. What do you expect to see from that? So it's going to be a meeting, for all we know, of the Palestinian factions, including Fatah and Hamas. Israel and the U.S. have insisted that Hamas should not be part of the new Palestinian government. But Palestinians see it differently because they see Hamas, even Fatah people see Hamas as part of the social fabric of uh, Palestinian society. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, The two experts that I spoke with predict that eventually the U.S. and and Israel will prevail and Hamas will not be a part, formally a part of a future Palestinian government. But it will definitely be somewhere behind the scenes. Uh, Again, because it's such a strong component of Palestinian society, also in the West Bank, not just in Gaza. And therefore, the new Palestinian government will have to uh, include people that are somehow Hamas-friendly, let's say. They will also be able to uh, leverage their authority over Hamas and force it, you know, to accept some sort of long-term truce with Israel uh, uh, along its, its terms some sort of like long-term hudna in Islamic terms, as uh, Hamas would uh, would say. But yeah, uh, let's see what comes out of this Moscow meeting. There are those who like to talk about Hamas as a military wing versus a terrorist uh, administrative wing. And do you think that this is going to be stepped up in an effort to kind of whitewash the more administrative wing to bring them into this Palestinian government? So actually, one of the Hamas top leaders, I want to say about Marzouk, I'm not sure, Uh, recently said that they're not interested in uh, administration anymore. They've been saying also, like, since the war started, that they they basically took over the administration of Gaza just so that it would be free to build tunnels and and stock weapons. So they said it again, they're willing to give up governance uh, as long as they can, 
retain whatever other resistance activities they, they've been busy with. But yeah, again, obviously, uh, with Israeli military presence in Gaza, it will no longer be possible. So it's not clear what role they're going to have. Okay, we'll get to a short break. And we're back. For years, Israeli news media has talked about, quote, alleged Israeli airstrikes on Syria. But lately, the Air Force is taking much more overt credit for targeting leaders of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Luca, you wrote a piece recently about this shift. So first of all, the fact that it is people that are being targeted, not just facilities, seems to be somewhat of a new policy. Would you agree? Well, the pace of it, Israel has attacked Iranian officials in Syria for a long time. It's never claimed responsibility. It's claimed responsibility for the attacks against uh, weapons deliveries, but never officially against top officials. We know that they killed a general, an Iranian general in 2015. But uh, what's happening now is that it basically, as one expert put it, it seems as if Israel is taking a list of these top Iranian uh, officials in, in Syria and taking, crossing off the names one by one, basically by targeting one after the other. We saw last week that it was an apartment building in the heart of Damascus, in the heart of an Iranian, predominantly Iranian neighborhood in, in Damascus that was targeted. We don't know who was killed there. But yeah, it's Israel has basically taken off the gloves against the RGC uh, before October 7th. A frequency of attacks like the, the one we've been seeing would have been a major red line cause for an uh, open war with Iran. Uh, now, this is no longer the case. Israel has been um, gaining momentum in its, in its uh, deterrence um, attacks in Syria. And so far, it seems to be going well. So because Iran and Hezbollah don't really have much of a way to retaliate from Syrian territory. Remind us, what is the IRGC? Um, so the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, is basically a part of the Iranian army that is tasked with uh, protecting the integrity of the Islamic Republic. So this, the entity that was born after the 79 uh, Islamic Revolution. The part of the IRGC that we're most familiar with is the Al-Quds Force. It's a, it's expeditionary force, the one that is in charge of Iranian operations in our neighboring countries, so Syria, uh, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, basically. And it's, it's a very powerful uh, force also inside Iran. A lot of uh, prominent politicians and uh, business people were once members of the IRGC. So it, it's a very controversial uh, element uh, in Iran, but also a very powerful one. And what are the experts you spoke with said that they're basically changing the demographic of Syrian Golan? Explain a little bit more of that. Right. This is very interesting. It's something that is not really talked about a lot, but there's, there's research on it. This happened um, about a decade ago, a few years, years after the start of the um, Syrian civil war. We know that there was a mass exodus of people out of Syria. Six million people at least have left the country. Half a million probably have been killed by the regime. And the area along the border with Israel, so the Golan Heights on the Syrian side, um, it was a mosaic of people that were Christians, Druze, but the majority was Sunnis, Sunni Muslims. And uh, they are the strongest opponent of the Assad regimes. And uh, basically, whole Sunni villages in the Syrian Golan were deserted during the civil war. And Iran came in and it basically started repopulating these villages with Shiite militias. You know, we, we know that Iran is a, is a Shiite Muslim uh, power, but there's Shiites um, throughout the Middle East. And... Um, uh, they basically started importing uh, militia fighters from places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, not Iranians. They don't want Iranians killed. Iraq, Yemen, and they started repopulating these villages. This has happened throughout Syria and other places as well. But whereas in other places, these militia fighters were brought in with the uh, idea to support the Assad regime, in the Golan specifically, where they were uh, brought in with uh, the purpose of freeing Jerusalem, of basically op opposing Israel. 
So uh, they've been carrying out attacks um, across the border, uh, but because of Israel's deterrence, because of its repeated attacks against Iranian officials in Syria and against Hezbollah in Syria and against Shiite militias in Syria, they've actually been deterred. And uh, it seems that a lot of them, again, it, it, it's hard to, to get information on the ground in Syria, uh, but it seems from intelligence that Israel has that a lot of them have moved away from the border. So while they can still fire uh, rockets from Syrian territory into Israel, we're probably safe from a ground operation the way that we saw it with uh, Hamas in the in the south. Small mercies, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, Luca, thank you for that update. Kanan, late last week, leaders of South African Jewry were visiting Israel and they organized a ceremony in honor of members of their community who were killed or wounded or made other sacrifices defending the Jewish state. So that sounds like a perfectly normal fitting thing for a visiting group of uh, Jewish leadership to do. But tell us why it's also a political protest in this case, Kanan. Right. I'm still processing what Luca just told us. You know, you think you know the neighborhood. Um, anyway, the South African Jewish community, especially after October 7, but even before that, was under a lot of pressure because of South African citizens serving in the IDF. Lone soldiers, but also just regular citizens when they come back to South Africa to uh, reunite with, with family. Uh, and, and that's that's part and parcel of the South African view that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. If you have genocide, if you have people who are perpetrating genocide, then you should prosecute them. So, so logically, that, that follows. And recently, we've seen escalation in that action when a government spokesperson said that the prosecution will be going after such citizens. So on their delegation to Israel... Uh, the first major delegation from South Africa after October 7, naturally the visitors decided not to lower their profile and instead include a big ceremony for all the fallen soldiers and to bring in families, of course, South African citizens uh, serving in the IDF, to this event near Yarlavi in the north, near Tzomet Golani, the iconic infantry brigade. So very militaristic, very defiant. And I asked members of that delegation, you know, um, I've covered many Jewish communities, especially in Europe, um, also in the Middle East, besieged, beleaguered, and so forth. And the natural reaction, even in larger ones, is to lower your profile, is to not go around and wave red capes around. Why did you do it? And uh, the answer I, I, I got was, you know, it's, it's part of our DNA, as Michael Kranzdorf the chairman of the JNF in South Africa told me. Um, it's it's just uh, the, our natural reaction, even though we know that this could escalate matters with the government. We are Lithuanian Jews who escaped Lithuania largely before the Holocaust, a very, a very proud and hardy folk, very Zionistic. The participation, the contribution of South African jury to Aliyah and to the IDF, even in the early years of Israel, was proportionally very high. And so basically, we can't help ourselves, is the reason, is the reason I were given to me. And um, the delegations also included a columnist with News24, which is kind of the South African Ynet, the most read outlet, who churned out these um, posts on social media about what's going on, and they're actually trying to make noise around it. And they're also, behind this is still the confidence in the South African constitution and South African democracy, despite 
the decline that we've seen in 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 terms of of corruption in government in terms of of basic infrastructure there's not always electricity in south africa there are outages there are regular outages the train uh traffic the train uh, is is wholly disrupted there are repeated strikes there's criminality uh in in urban centers it's very un- unsafe to to go at certain hours of the night even in in the city centers and so despite this uh, many south african jews still believe in democracy that they're not going to give away this right to have an opinion to have a view on israel and to demonstrate it Kanan, thank you so much for that update. Kanan, Luca, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's daily briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.